Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Aesthetic Insider Radio. This is your host, Angela O'Mara. Today I have Dr. Elena Cooper-Capustino of Iris Healing Retreat Addiction Treatment Center in Woodland Hills, California. And the question I'm asking Dr. Elena today is, is the opioid epidemic affecting today's medical practice? Dr. Elena, welcome to Aesthetic Insider Radio. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show with me today. Thank you so much. Hi, everybody. I'm really glad to be here. Oh, absolutely. And you know, uh, Dr. Elena, for those listeners who are not familiar um, with you or with um, Iris Healing Retreat Addiction Treatment Center, um, I would love it if just, you, know, you can give us a brief background about yourself and just tell our listeners all about Iris Healing Retreat. Okay, sure. I'll be really brief. Um, Iris Healing Retreat is, is a small six-bed boutique uh, facility, addiction treatment, dual diagnosis facility in Woodland Hills area of Los Angeles, California. Um, we treat primary addiction, but we also treat the underlying conditions such as depression, bipolar, PTSD. We do a lot of trauma work and pretty much look at what's going on as, you know, what what causes the addiction in the first place. And our program is running 30 to 90 days. It's residential intensive treatment. And we have doctorate level clinical team that can treat the clients on a very deep level. And we have medical well, team know, as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. That sounds wonderful. You know, uh, many of our listeners are, are physicians themselves and um you know, and they have medical practices with staff. And, um, you know, I do um, seem to understand that, you know, um, at, at Iris, obviously, you're, you're treating, you know, drug and alcohol abuse and, you know, other substance issues. Um, but one of the things I think, you know, I'd really like to explore more with you today is uh, the opioid epidemic. And um, why do you think opioid abuse is considered to be at an epidemic level at this point in our lives? Well, um, you know, statistics are pretty mind-boggling, and it's not something that we just see in our practice here. We see more and more opioid users ending up in addiction treatment facilities, Um, but also if you look at overall statistics worldwide, it's about, um, the estimate is that 26 to 36 million people worldwide abuse opioid medications. And, um, you know, if you look at, you know, death rates, and uh, overall opioid uh, prescription just in U.S., it's about 12 million people in the United States misuse um, opioid prescriptions. And about just in uh, one year, it's about 33,000 people that died from overdosing on opioids. And it's definitely becoming a big issue for medical community as well. Um, in general population, it's about 8 to 10% of population that are addicted to opioids or painkiller uh, pain medications. And uh, among physicians and medical personnel, the rate goes up to 15%, which is almost 50% more than in general population. So it's really, really alarming at this point. Now, now have you, you know, in your, your time, you know, obviously working with people who, who are addicted to painkillers, um, you know, and there's many reasons, but why would you? Why do you think the the abuse is is considered to be epidemic? Is it just because the numbers are so great? Um, is there anything driving those numbers? Well, I think overall, um, 
you know, the numbers are very, very high, and also they're growing, um, growing like every year to year. The growth of these numbers, the overdoses and misuse and addiction to opioids, is actually higher than any other disease, you know, so far or any other addiction so far. So that's why it was announced an epidemic, and um, you know, it cost our uh, country about. You know, almost $80 billion in economic costs just due to op- opioid um, abuse. Um, well, you know, one of the reasons, because it's easily accessible and, you know, and it's prescribed highly by the doctors and not, you know, everybody's aware how addictive it is and how um, tolerance, you know, how high, like how how bad the tolerance develops to it. So people end up using heroin because it's much cheaper and, um, than buying opioids off the streets. So I think, I think that's one of the main reasons why it's so um, important to address this epidemic at this point. And then, you know, um, you know, again, many of our listeners are physicians and um, who have medical staff, you know, um, in their private practices. Have you found that, that drug abuse or abuse of, you know, anything within the practice in terms of, of narcotics and by staff, is something that medical doctors should be concerned about in their own private practices? Oh yes, definitely. Um, there is. There are more and more cases come up when um, you know doctors and nurses and um, you know technicians in hospitals um, abusing the opioids and stealing it from clients or from the hospitals, which is uh, medication diversion. Um, term is that um, that is used for this uh, situation. Um, so, based on the recent research, um, more than um, 100,000 of doctors, um, 100,000 doctors, nurses, and technicians, and other healthcare professionals struggle with abuse or addiction, and you know most of them involve oxycodone or fentanyl. And, um, you know, there are a lot of cases when um, medical uh, health professionals use even sharing needles with the clients. And there are a lot of cases recently when, like, 8,000 people in eight states, you know, ended up with hepatitis C because of that sharing situation. And there was another case recently when um, 43 physicians were actually um, sentenced for drug abuse during their practice, and their licenses were suspended. Um, And another case was where USC Dean of Medicine was fired due to his addiction issues. Um, And there's also another study by American Nurse Association that says that approximately 10% of nurses uh, are dependent on drugs, and sometimes they use clients' drugs as well, which means if we have about 300,000 nurses um, in U.S., um, registered nurses in U.S., you know, 10% of that struggle with addiction. So basically, you know, every 10th nurse um, will um, struggle with addiction. So this is really alarming because it affects, you know, medical practice, it affects clients, it affects, you know, level of care and service quality uh, that we get in when we go to medical health facilities. So it is really, really alarming statistics. No, it really is alarming. Now, how how would you say, you know, because obviously I'd like to discuss more the direct impact on a medical practice. And so how would you say the, um, like, people missing work as a result of, of addiction? Um, um, is there one of the statistics studies... I'm sorry? 
Oh, yeah, like, you know, how many people miss work as a result of prescription painkillers? Okay, so one of the recent studies um, that was done uh, by, um, I think it was USA Today that quoted that study, um, that about 39% of all U.S. workers, not just healthcare workers, missed work due to prescription uh, prescription painkiller abuse. You know, and if we take that 39% and extrapolate it by almost 50% higher rate in medical health profession, it probably would take it closer to 60% of medical health professionals, um, just based on the logic that would miss work due to painkiller abuse. Yeah, that's pretty alarming. It makes you wonder who's left, you know, at, at the office to, <laughs> to treat patients if 60% of the staff is missing because of their addiction issues, um, you know, that's a huge number. Um, it is, yes. And I, if, go ahead. No, 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 go, continue because I have another question. Um, please continue with, with your, what you were saying. Okay, and yes, and a lot of companies implementing drug tests right now, um, random drug tests at work, and it depends on the work policy, but it's definitely highly recommended um, procedure that, that we can see more and more in healthcare facilities. And um, about 32% have shown positive drug tests, you know, when we when you implement those. That's, again, that's one-third of all employees in medical health field were tested positive, you know, for drugs at some point. And 32% also, it's one-third. That's a pretty alarming statistic. Really? Is. And then, you know, when you're saying now this is like random drug, you know, random drug testing that is done in, in medical facilities on staff members, um, so are you saying is that people who are actually coming to work under the influence of something that are being tested and then found positive? Yes, I mean, under correct? the influence is a slightly lower percent because you can test positive. It depends what drug you're using. And obviously opioid, you can test positive for quite a long period of time. Um, so actual impaired, I think the percentage was about 29. So it's slightly lower than positive drug, te- drug test percentage. Very alarming, you know, 30%, almost 29% um, were actually impaired by as a result of drugs or alcohol. I see. And so, so it could have been somebody who used drugs on the weekend but was tested, say, on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, and certain drugs may still be in their system, so they didn't necessarily take them that morning coming into the office. But Correct. left in their Correct. system from the weekend. Got it. Got it. It's still pretty yeah. huge numbers, so... Um, do you find, um, you know, because obviously, you know, we, we all read stories of, in addiction and, and how, you know, people with addiction issues tend to do things that perhaps they wouldn't do if they didn't have, you know, the addiction problem. Um, is stealing drugs from a medical practice a problem by staff members? Is that something doctors should be concerned about? Yes, definitely. You know, it's it's very easy to, um, you know, in most facilities, you know, there there have been multiple, multiple cases when not only drugs were stolen, but they were also used during the work shifts and, you know, and also they were diverted from the clients in some cases when, um, you know, like technicians or nurses used uh, painkiller medications or IVs themselves and using the same needles to provide um, clients with non-medicated, like sterile solution or one of those saline solutions or, you know, some some other things. And sharing needles is an issue, and obviously, you know, drug septin is an issue, which is huge in some bigger facilities as well. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that is amazing. That um, now, what about um, people selling drugs at work? I mean, have you in the, in the medical practice have you had any incidences where you know a staff member is actually also selling drugs to other staff members? Um, yes, I mean. We do hear about it all the time, and there was another research done on that where um, they were, you know, doing anonymous research among all the healthcare practitioners, and um, that particular research showed that at least 40%, 14, I'm sorry, one four, 14% of employees either borrow or sell drugs at work. So they can either borrow and then return it once they have their own drugs purchased somewhere else, or they actually steal it and sell it at work. So that's 14% of employees that responded, yes, I have done that. Oh, there's huge numbers. Um, you know, um, obviously, you, you know, there has to be solutions, you know, for this. And, of course, a solution, you know, is for that, that addict to have some kind of um, support, um, you know, uh, rehabilitation and that type of thing. But before that could happen, are there any signs or symptoms that a manager can look for to determine if an employee has a drug or alcohol problem? Oh yes, definitely. There is a lot of there are a lot of signs that you know we can look out for. Um, first of all, it's usually the change in work habits. Um, there's more and more, you know absenteeism, you know, missing meetings, meeting, missing deadlines, uh, drowsiness, um, lack of hygiene, um, frequent flu-like symptoms. Um, you can look at their eyes, you know, once when, when you're using opioids, your um, pupils are really small pin, pinpoint pupils. Um, they, they can be respiratory depression, the really slow breath. Um, sometimes it can be prolonged use, can be associated with weight loss, um, change in energy level. Um, so, so those people who are abused, they become too lethargic, they're kind of foggy, they can't clear, clearly think. So you can see those changes in behavior and in uh, overall like lifestyle once people you know start getting addicted to opioids. There's definitely a lot of changes. Somebody who was energetic and motivated becomes this, you know, depressed, kind of drowsy, lethargic person. And you, you can see the changes, you know, over the time, definitely. Yeah, and that makes sense. I mean, I even know, in, you know, I've, I've had in my own kind of office in the past when, you know, a staff member, you know, has kind of been, you know, having a party on the weekend or they've been out for a happy hour the night before, you know, and they kind of come in the next day and you just know that they have too much to drink the night before, mm. you know, and they, maybe they're late for work or they're, you know, a bit slower off the mark than they usually are. And so, you know, I think some of those things, you know, are kind of easy to see. But, um, you know, I, I do think, you know, again, from what I've, I understand in, in the whole addiction realm is, is many addicts are quite good at hiding um, mm. their, their addiction problems as well. And so um, I do think when you say, like, you know, just certain, you know, physical changes, um, are there any other changes, you know, that kind of go in, in tow with with that type of a problem, you know, whether it's being late for work more frequently, um, not following up on things as they should, you know, what what other what other things can, can doctors and their, and their managers be looking for? Well, I mean, they can do 
random, you know, UA testing, urine analysis testing. Um, they can do um, also opioid abuse and overall drug and alcohol abuse education classes, um, you know, and they can advise therapy, they can advise treatment. I mean, if it becomes too obvious, I mean, I think I encourage, you know, employers to send people to treatment, whether it's inpatient or outpatient or whatever level of care they require, because ultimately, you know, a lot of people hide their drug abuse and they can't really stop on their own and they don't want to lose their job. But it's important for employers to understand that the cost of addiction is really, really high. I mean, overall in U.S., it costs employers over $10 billion a year, um, you know, to deal with addiction issues. And if you look at individual health care costs for regular, for non um you know, non-abuser, average health care cost per employee is around 10000 in U.S. per year. And for opioid abusers, it's at least twice as much. It's at least $19,000 per year. So it does cost directly or indirectly employers a lot of, um, you know, a lot of expenses to have somebody with addiction. So it's very important to identify it early, encourage help, send to treatment, uh, maybe sign up for like some program, especially for bigger companies where, you know, people will get educated, people will get treated, people will go to groups and therapy sessions and addiction counseling sessions. It's very, very in, in, important to educate employers and employees on the um, addiction and levels of addiction and um, how to treat it. Yeah, and I think it's also interesting or, you know, important to address address addiction because, you know, I think there's there's many different reactions to to a person who who has addiction issues in terms of whether you know it could have been that perhaps that was a really good employee who has suffered some kind of an injury or a work related injury is put on you know pain killers because of that injury then becomes addicted and and their life changes as a result versus you know somebody who has kind of had drug seeking behavior before you even employed them. Um, do, you, do you have any kind of like case studies or examples of, you know, um, people within a medical practice who have kind of found themselves with an issue and, and have turned to somebody like yourself, you know, to um, to fix the problem? Because, you know, good employees are hard to find. <laughs> and I'd like to think that they can be rehabilitated in some way to, you know, rather than they, they're, they're wasting their time at the practice. Mm-hmm. Well, there are a lot of cases where, um, you know, high-end professionals and very high-functioning people get addicted to, um, and in this case, to opioids, and it can happen, um, you know, for multiple reasons. It can be somebody who had an auto accident or skin accident or, you know, some type of a condition that required surgery, and they get, you know, opioids as a part of their treatment, you know, plan, and they use it as prescribed, but the tolerance grows very fast, and addiction, and, and you know, grows really, really fast, and at some point, they start, you know, the amount that is prescribed stops working, and we see a lot of cases like that when they start using more and more and more. There were some physicians um, that were... Um, you know, sentenced recently that used up to like 100 pills, you know, oxycodone pills a day because they just, their tolerance was, you know, they developed like really high tolerance to it. So, and they were going to work and perform, you know, surgical procedures. Uh, some anesthesiologists just 
some cases um, um, anesthesiologists abusing really high doses of um, painkillers and then what happens at some point even the painkillers stop working or it becomes too expensive to get so the next step is heroin usually and that makes it you know really dangerous for not only for the person who is abusing but for all the patients and clients and you know everybody who's working under their jurisdiction so, um, you know, there was just recently a case in um, New Hampshire. One of their um, hospital technicians, his name is David Kwakowski, um, he was caught injecting himself with patient's pain medicine and refilling the ser- same syringes with saline. So he infected at least 46 uh, clients just in New Hampshire area, just on that, you know, particular case. Um, so, so it's called drug diversion, the official term for stealing drugs. So, but potentially it can endanger thousands of people. Um, there was another case where 8,000 people were um, um, were um, tested positive for hepatitis C just because of needle sharing happening at the hospital. Um, That's unbelievable. You know, I mean, because this is these are the type of stories that you think are happening you know, in back alleys in big cities, you know, kind of, you know, street drugs, um, not not in a, you know, polished hospital or a medical office setting. Yep. And the most, the scariest part is that much of the damage goes unnoticed or undocumented and um, oversight mechanism to detect, report and address drug problems in healthcare settings, are, you know, very limited for some reason. So it seems like, you know, medical health professionals, they kind of in charge and they know what they're doing and everything is so regulated and procedure driven. Uh, But the reality shows that with this epidemic on a rise, it's definitely a weak spot that needs a lot of attention. What recommendations would you give to a medical doctor, you know, on a smaller level, you know, not necessarily a hospital level, but you know, a physician in a, in private practice, you know, with, you know, 10 to 20 staff members, um, you know, what recommendations would you give to them, you know, when they, when they realize that they have a problem like this in the office, you know, what are the next steps in helping that person, you know, I mean, I would, help? you know, as a first step, I would encourage, as I said, education and drug testing, um, you know, as a first step, and then once you realize you have an issue, and it might be, you know, great in place where we get a lot of professionals at Iris here who are amazing, successful professionals, and they do get hooked on opioids. So I would encourage them, you know, employers to encourage employees to get help. I, you know, whether it's a part of the benefit plan or outpatient or short-term residential, give them medical leave, send them to treatment. And, you know, really, you know, not necessarily just to fire and get rid of those employees because they, they are great employees and there are a lot of people abusing opioids, but to encourage treatment, to, you know, explain that it's a brain disease and how the addiction works and whether by themselves or bring resources for those employees um, or send them out to counselors and therapists and the programs that deal with it, but to encourage and support treatment, not to stigmatize it, not to blame, not to fire, but to actually provide resources and provide help uh, to those employees and encourage treatment and encourage recovery and support them as much as possible. 
And then, and then, you know, obviously, Iris, you know, healing retreat is is an option for. I mean, I know I, I would imagine that you have patients in your center from all across the country, not just the Los Angeles area, of course, or you're based in LA. Um, are there any re- other resources, you know, that you would recommend, you know, or, you know, can, you know, physicians who do have this happening in their practice, you know, can they get in touch with you or what would you say would be, you know, the next step for them once they've identified the problem and they've, they've done the drug testing and then it's like, okay, how do we now help this person get to the mm-hmm. next step? Or is that something that is, is truly up to the addict themselves? Well, I would encourage to have a list of resources, and we have uh, quite a few resources on our website, and we're always available. Um, you know, our website is irishealingretreat.com, um, and we can be also reached at 844-663-4747. We have a list of resources for different types of insurances, in different, you know, we network with a lot of facilities all over the country. We have sober livings network that we work with. We have um, outpatient services um, that, is, you know, we are, you know, networking with, and they, that does a great job. So we can always be a, a resource and point um, clients in the right direction and connect them to the right programs that is a good fit for that, their situation. We can evaluate it and kind of send them in the right direction. We're obviously very limited with our, our six-bed facility here, and we're almost you know, full all the time, but we have a lot of resources that we can provide. So we'll be more than happy to help. Absolutely. And then, then in terms of recovery for patients, um, do you feel, you know, um, and again, I'm thinking, you know, from an employer's point of view, you know, when you find out that, you know, this staff member, you know, has been, you know, abusing whether it's painkillers that we have in the practice or they're buying them from another staff member or, or bringing them in or whatever they're doing. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think a lot of times many people are angry, you know, uh, many, you know, managers, uh, uh, owners are angry at that person for what they're doing, even though they know it's a disease and, and that, that this person needs help. But would you say, you know, there is hope for this person to come back into the practice recovered from their addiction because of centers like yours that can that can really help them deal with these issues oh yes yes of course of course we we have a lot of professionals you know who's been through our program and a lot of other great programs that i know of who went back to work obviously they are they are in recovery at this point you know so they can you know, go get a drink at the bar anymore at happy hour with their co-workers. So they have to stay in the program and commit to the program of recovery. But there are a lot of, a lot of successful doctors and nurses in recovery that I personally know of. So recovery is possible, it's doable, it's a lot of work, and it is a lifelong work. It's not like you go to treatment once and you're cured and you can do anything you want afterwards, you stay on that path, you, you continue working the program, whether it's 12-step or something else, but you have to, recovery is like a lifelong work, it's not something that just gets fixed as acute disease, you know, at some point and you move on, so as long as person understands that and stays on that path, I mean, there are thousands of success stories, so it's definitely doable, the sooner you get help, the better, and it's, you know, the recovery rate is pretty high, thankfully, to all the treatment programs. 
You know, that's wonderful to hear. And Dr. Lena, thank you so much for being on Aesthetic Insider Radio. And uh, for, for those of you that may have come in to listen to the show a little bit later, um, today's interview was with Dr. Elena Capucina, and she is the founder and CEO of Iris Healing Retreat Addiction Treatment Center in Woodland Hills, California, and um, can be reached at www.irishealingretreat.com. Dr. Elena, again, thank you so much for this invaluable information, and um, I'd love to have you back on the show as a guest sometime in the future. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye.